name. I'm the director of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy. And this is my first uh, digital interview with a very dear and distinguished guest. Uh, this is James Rickards. So for those of you who are watching and are not familiar with his background, I would like to introduce uh, Jim very shortly. He is a New York Times bestselling author of uh, several books, The Currency Wars, The Debt of Money, The Road to Win, and national bestseller, The New Case of Gold. He is the editor of the newsletter, Strategic Intelligence, and his most recent book, Aftermath, Seven Secrets of Wealth Preservation in the Coming Chaos, was published just last year uh, on July 20, 22nd. Sorry. I was actually very glad to uh, present the book uh, in September and to have a public discussion with uh, Jim Rickards uh, in Vienna, where we discussed not only the developments uh, outlined in the book, but also possible scenarios. And we already see that some of these scenarios are taking place a year later. He's also an advisor on international economics and financial threats to the Department of Defense and the U.S. intelligence community. He served as a facilitator of the first ever financial war games conducted by the Pentagon. Welcome, Jim Rickards, and I'm really glad that you are my first guest to this digital uh, interview. And as you can already guess, I would like to start immediately with my first question that is related to the United States. We've witnessed unprecedented, uh, unprecedented fiscal and monetary um, measures and steps taken by the U.S. authorities and by, by the U.S. institutions. Uh, we are indeed still in a very unique situation, not only because of the COVID-19, but also because of the way how the U.S. government and the U.S. institutions reacted to it very swiftly, very quickly. But I would like to hear from you, first and foremost, what is your assessment on the current situation? What are your expectations? What comes next? Great. When well, it comes you, to Lynn. the it's US. Great. It's great to be with you. And it was, uh, it was great uh, meeting you in person last year when we were in Vienna. Uh, of course, today, no one can travel. We're all uh, under lockdown. So, uh, but at least we get to do this uh, through through a video link. So uh, it's it's great to be with you. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the big question. I think a lot of uh, I think most analysts, most observers, everyday people uh, around the world know what's going on with the pandemic. Um, and different countries have adopted different approaches to it. You have uh, countries like Sweden and to some extent Austria, where you are took a, a everyone and did things like social distancing and um, no more handshakes and um, wearing face masks and so forth. But I would say Austria and Sweden are among those countries that took a lighter approach, kind of developed what they call herd immunity, which is, you know, if a lot of people get the disease and, and they're not uh, much affected by it and they develop the antibodies and they're immune, that's actually a good thing. And you can get that to a large population fairly quickly. And of course, some people more severe and tragically, uh, we have some fatalities, but that's true across the board. There are other countries, I would say China and South Korea, uh, which took a more extreme approach, locked down everything. South Korea is, is the model for that. They locked down the entire country very quickly. Everyone had masks, everyone had to stay home, widespread testing, and they got a very good handle on the disease and had relatively few fatalities. The United States 
has sort of kind of bumbled its way through a, a hybrid approach. I think we, we started out not taking it seriously enough, not doing enough fast enough, although some some things were done correctly. President Trump's ban on travel from China was, was a, a bold move, got a lot of criticism at the time, turns out to be exactly the right thing to do. But we've had difficulty with uh, equipment, masks, ventilators, um, testing, uh, and so the U.S. was a little bit slow in that respect, but we eventually got to a lockdown uh, that's been enforced for about six weeks at this point, uh, but that was a little bit too late to keep a lid on the disease. So we've seen different approaches, extreme lockdown, light touch, and I would put Austria and Sweden in that category, and then the United States, which is uh, a little bit more of a model. We, we, we sort of did both. What's interesting is that the disease seems to run a course uh, of its own, regardless of what you do. I'm not saying that masks and, and social distancing don't matter. They do. They're, they're good things. Everyone agrees on that. But the extreme lockdown seems not to change the path of the disease very much. It, it starts out at a certain point, uh, peaks around uh, 45 days, and then starts to fade and become a little more manageable after about uh, 70 days. So in the United States, if you start from March 1st, I know we had some cases earlier, but March 1st is when it really started to spread. Uh, you, you'd expect the peak around April 15th uh, in terms of infections and, and fatalities, which is exactly what happened. Our, our peak uh, apex, as they call it, was around April 15th. And you would expect to be able to reopen things, get back to normal by May 15th. And indeed, a lot of our governors in May set specific dates, not all of them, but, but May 15th seems to be the, the center of the, the fairway, if you will, in terms of when a lot of the U.S. economy will start to come back. So, um, you know, the bad news is the, uh, the the damage caused by the disease and the fatalities. The good news is that it does seem to be uh, declining, uh, at least at least in the United States and Western Europe and uh, East Asia. I think Africa is a, a, a different case that maybe uh, the worst may be, may be yet to come in Africa. So that's the good news. As far as the economic impact, and that was really the, the question, mm -hmm. um, it has been devastating. And again, this is widely appreciated. So second quarter GDP in the United States will be down. It's an estimate. We, we won't have that number for another um, almost four months at this stage, uh, or three months rather, but um, probably down 30%, perhaps 40%. Uh, we're seeing similar drops in Europe now. That's one quarter, uh, so annualized rate of, let's say, 30% for a quarter. So that's, uh, that's seven, uh, seven and a quarter percent uh, if everything else were flat for the, for the rest of the year, uh, which you know, remains to be seen. But, but that is a more severe drop than any uh, output since the Great Depression uh, and mm -hmm. you know, far worse than anything since the end of World War II. So that much is known. The question is how quickly does the economy come back? Uh, and there, there's, there's a real debate. On the one hand, you had people say, well, look, we had to shut everything down, but by May or June, mm -hmm. we'll reopen it. They'll hire the workers back. People will go out. They'll go to restaurants. They'll go to shows. They'll start spending and get back on airplanes. This whole thing will come back very quickly. Uh, we hear talk like this from the White House, from Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, uh, National Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow, uh, you know, kind of talking heads on financial television. They use the phrase, pent-up demand, meaning, yeah, we didn't consume as much in the second quarter, but boy, we can't wait to go out and spend money in the third quarter. Mm -hmm. That's not impossible. You can't rule it out. You have to you pay attention to that. But I, I think that is not a good description of what's going to happen to the U.S. economy. We're going to be stuck in something more closely resembling a depression uh, for several mm -hmm. years. It will be perhaps 
three years before most of these jobs are, are recovered. If ever, it will be perhaps uh, two years before we get back to uh, 2019 levels of output for a full year. Again, quarterly mm -hmm. numbers will vary. We might have a strong quarter later in the year, but uh, it's going to take a couple of years to claw back out of this hole. And there are very specific reasons for that. And let me give you a couple of concrete examples. Mm -hmm. You can kind of break the economy into uh, what could be permanent losses versus temporary losses. And here's the difference. So, you know, my wife and I like to go out to dinner on a Friday night. <clears throat> we didn't go out last Friday night. We're not going out, you know, tonight, next probably not going out next Friday night. Uh, so that's lost output. So let's say by July, things are better, restaurants are open, and we go out for dinner. We're not going to order 10 dinners. We're not going to order the 10 dinners that we missed. We're just going to have one dinner as we usually do. That lost output is lost forever. It's never coming back. Uh, now, if I were going to buy a car, you know, last week and I decided to put it off uh, and then I go out and buy the car in August, that's a temporary loss. So all we're doing is we're shifting demand from the second quarter to the third quarter, but we still buy the car. So the question is, what's the mix of the economy? Uh, how much of these losses are permanent and how much are, are temporary? They're just timing differences. And the answer is the overwhelming majority of it are, are permanent losses. 70% uh, of the U.S. economy is consumption. Um, the overwhelming majority of that is uh, um, services, not you know restaurants, bars, hotels, travel, airplanes, your dry cleaner, your your pizza parlor, hairstylist, whatever. Um, and you know people kind of look down their nose at small business. Their their stock investors in particular are focused on a Boeing or General Motors or uh, IBM or large corporations, and that's fine. But the small businesses I just described are about 45% of GDP and 47% of all jobs. In other words, that's half the economy has been shut mm -hmm. down. It can reopen, but not all of them will reopen. Again, some of the restaurants that close their doors, they don't have working capital. You take all of their revenues away, now they'll immediately fire all the employees, and people say, well, yeah, but when they reopen, they'll hire the employees back. That's not true. First of all, they may not reopen. Some of them will just close the doors, permanently file for bankruptcy, it's not that somebody won't come in and open a restaurant there someday. Perhaps they will, but not anytime soon. And even if you do survive and reopen, if you had 20 workers in your restaurant, you might hire 10. Uh, you know, and then maybe one more and one more. You're not going to hire all 20 back at once. So these jobs are not going to be recovered. Some of the, a lot of the consumption is permanently lost. A lot of the jobs are permanently lost. Mm -hmm. A lot of the firms are not going to make it. They'll file for bankruptcy. And then there are ripple effects across the country. Landlords are sorry, not paying the rents. Commercial tenants, residential tenants, uh, others, they're not paying the rents. Um, they're okay. I'm, I'm shut yeah. down. I'm not getting any revenue. Um, don't ask me to pay mm -hmm. the rent. Well, that puts the burden on the landlords, but then the landlords can't pay the mortgages. And then mm -hmm. that puts the burden on the banks. So there are these ripple effects. So, uh, you know, we, we could kind of go on about the psychological effects. Uh, you know, can the Congress, you mentioned fiscal and monetary stimulus. So, well, I don't call it stimulus. It is spending. We're going to spend mm -hmm. about $5 trillion this year, and, and the Federal Reserve is going to print $5 trillion of new money. So here's, you know, $5 trillion of liquidity and $5 trillion of new spending. So, you know, you can keep the lights on the financial system, and you can get money and shove it out the door. But that doesn't turn into consumption. People will do two things. They'll pay down debt, and they'll save it. Well, those might be good things to do. Those might be really smart things to do, but that's not consumption. So I, I, I look for more of a depression than a recession. 
I look for years of recovery. Um, and I would say the stock market has a lot further to fall. Okay, thank you, Jim. So to sum it up, because what you've outlined uh, for our listeners is basically what is going to happen also on this side of the Atlantic uh, regarding European economies. Our expectations are also huge drops in the shares of uh, GDP. Uh, some uh, of the countries estimate already two digits uh, uh, percentage uh, drop. Um, also, of course, demand side is that, and uh, you're completely right that uh, the lockdown was, uh, of course, uh, varying between uh, complete lockdown on the one side in some of the member states and some of the European countries, and then some of uh, other countries like uh, Sweden, for instance, they decided to um, to have a partial lockdown. Uh, just a minor correction, uh, Austria was uh, well went for a complete lockdown uh, at the beginning of March and now is among the first actually that is uh, already on the side of uh, reopening um, the economy. So we are together with uh, Denmark, uh, the first countries aside from Sweden that didn't close of uh, shut down the economy, right? Uh, and also UK, of course, uh, didn't shut down completely the economy. So we are something in between. Uh, we uh, had a complete lock uh, lockdown, but now we are on the side of uh, opening up. So we are going to be among the first to basically see what comes next. Are we going to witness surging numbers in uh, terms of um, infected cases, or are we going to uh, cope with the situation. Uh, hopefully, there is not going to be a second wave, like it's the case already in uh, some of the Asian countries that you've mentioned, where we are already observing a second wave, like uh, in Singapore or in South Korea or even in China, in some provinces of China. Now, interestingly, what you've outlined for us uh, for uh, the economy and for um, the financial system uh, goes to another layer, and that is the layer of the global financial system. And when we talk about the global financial system, of course, the U.S. Um, and the monetary system. Uh, of course, the U.S. Uh, dollar is at the heart of it, and the U.S. led institutions are still, of course, uh, in the leading position. So how do you see this global... Uh, well, ongoing global power competition that was already the case prior to COVID-19. We were already observing systemic decoupling between China and United States. There, uh, there's going to be already, as discussed already by um, analysts, um, a kind of a reconfiguration of supply chains. How do you see this uh, picture? What is your expectation for this kind of uh, systemic um, processes and uh, developments. Uh, um, China is certainly not going to wait uh, for the developed economies uh, in Europe and in actually and in the United States to uh, revive demand, right? And to reopen economies, but it's going to try to already um, get better numbers because we know that the political elite in uh, China is very much dependent on uh, on uh, good growth, on solid growth numbers, and so on and so forth. So, how do you see this uh, in the bigger picture, in the bigger context? Well, let's let me just unpack that a little bit, Valina, because you had sort of a great question, but sort of three parts. One is 
you know, the impact of monetary policy on the dollar, which is the number one global reserve currency, two, decoupling from China, and three, what's going on in China itself. I'll do the, the third one uh, first. Uh, China will have better numbers because they lie. Uh, you can't rely on Chinese numbers. They make them up, they massage them, they do what they have to do. So we might see better numbers out of China, but that doesn't mean that their economy is recovering. It does not mean that they're not very badly wounded, which they are. Uh, they just they just make up the numbers. There are some services and some metrics that are more reliable that you can look at and see how the Chinese economy is doing. But any official figures are basically a lie. So I wouldn't stock in those. Um, and as far as that's concerned, China may say, well, we don't care if the rest of the developed world is still suffering. We're ready to go. I'm sorry, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. I mean, who's who's buying your stuff? You have a manufacturing export driven economy, not completely. They've got a large investment component. They have a growing consumption a component, although it's not nearly as big as the developed economies. And of course, a large uh, export and import sector because they have to import raw materials uh, to do the manufacturing to generate these slightly more high value added um, uh, exports. Well, if the demand is not there in Europe and the United States, then it doesn't matter what China does. We're not going to buy their stuff. So that's going to cause their economy to slow down. And then if you can't export, you probably don't want to import as much because all you're going to do is stockpile, uh, stockpile the goods. Uh, as far as investment is concerned, investment is a very large part of Chinese GDP, about 45%, which is, you know, compare that to maybe about 25% in the U.S. economy. The problem with Chinese investment is it's, it's mostly wasted. Half of their investment uh, goes into projects that are not needed, serve no purpose, generate no revenues, can't pay for themselves. It's nice. I've traveled extensively in China, been through all parts of China. The, you know, the railroad stations are, uh, are magnificent. I was in one in Nanjing South. They have 128 escalators, but nobody's on them. So, um, you know, just nice, uh, nice escalators. Uh, but, but the point being, if they want to borrow more money and waste more money, you know, be my guest, but that's not going to help their economy. That'll just lead them closer to a financial meltdown, and they're utterly dependent on the developed world. So again, if Europe and the United States are not buying Chinese manufactured products, uh, then the Chinese economy is going nowhere in the short run. And their internal consumers, yeah, it's a growing sector, but they still have hundreds of millions living in you know, near poverty, hundreds of millions in the countryside, a very old demographic. Um, and so a lot of, uh, and, and they're heavily, heavily indebted. So um, there are a lot of impediments to growth, not to mention the fact that their their dollar reserves will be um, be used, be dwindling somewhat, um, you know, in, in the months to come. So that's so the, the internal Chinese picture is not a good one. Now, as far as decoupling is concerned, you're absolutely right. Uh, that was going on before the uh, before the Wuhan virus uh, took off, uh, before the global pandemic that had already begun. That is not going to be greatly accelerated. I can't speak to yes. Europe as much, although I'm sure you know, the French and uh, Austrians and Germans and, and uh, UK are all looking at it. But as far as the United States is concerned, we never again want to be in the position where we're dependent upon an adversary and, and by the way, great abuser of human rights for our pharmaceuticals. So uh, we, we should expect the pharmaceutical industry will be brought back to the United States. A lot of uh, high-tech uh, manufacturing will be brought back to the United States. Interestingly, Chinese wages have gone up so much in real terms that U.S. labor is actually competitive with Chinese labor, not at the kind of simple, uh, you know, Lego assembly ma uh, manufacturing level, but certainly in more high-value-added applications 
research, mm -hmm. uh, pharmaceutical industry, uh, and others, um, U.S. workers are completely competitive. So this will actually be a source of U.S. jobs and U.S. investment in the future as we bring back, uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> pardon me, these industries to the United States. This leaves China, you know, sort of crashing into a wall because th they were already stuck in what uh, development economists call the middle income trap. Uh, I studied uh, development economics, international economics at the graduate level in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And at that time, th there's always been sort of a low income, a middle income, and a high income group of countries. And of course, Europe and you know, a couple others, uh, Japan are in the, the high income group. Um, some of the poorest countries of the world are in the low income group, and there's a lot in the middle. We used to think that the hard part was getting from low income to middle income. That was really difficult. But if you get if you could get to middle income, which is around say ten thousand dollars per year per capita, that the path to high income was straightforward. You would just sort of keep doing what you were doing. Turns out that's completely wrong. Getting from low income to middle income is is pretty straightforward. All you really have to do is get rid of corruption, um, attract foreign direct investment, move people from the country to the cities and give them kind of simple uh, manufacturing uh, tasks and run a trade surplus and build up your reserves and, and you're there. Uh, the hard part, it turns out, is getting from middle income to high income. You do that with high value added products and with technology. Well, my point being, if we bring the technology and the more high value added sector of the Chinese economy back to the United States, that's gonna block their path to high income. And of course they have, they have a lot of debt. So, uh, the, the outlook for China is very poor and you cannot rule out a financial crisis or even a, a crisis of confidence in the leadership in the uh, the Communist Party of uh, China. And the leadership are very, very well aware of that. They're going to be desperate to keep things going in China, but they have all, all the headwinds uh, that, that I described. So um, mm -hmm. so the decoupling is, is, is going to head, it's going to accelerate, it's going to impede Chinese growth, and rightly so, because they stole so much of the intellectual property to begin with, and then China, for its own part, they're not going to be able to do better than the developing economy, or so the developed economies in Europe and the U.S. both have very serious problems right now. So, as I say, if we're not if we're not buying their stuff, then uh, then they're not going anywhere. And on your first question, the strength of the dollar, uh, yep. you know, there was a very famous jazz. Uh, song uh, from Switzerland, actually. Uh, it was a great live performance in Switzerland. And then the song is called Compared to What? It's one of the great jazz um, jazz songs of, of all time. So when, when people say, is the dollar strong? <clears throat> I say, compared to what? So everyone's looking at the dollar, you know, the euro, US dollar cross rate, or they're measuring the dollar by DXY or Dixie, that's a, a currency basket, or you know, Bloomberg has a dollar index, the Federal Reserve has a dollar index. And by all these measures, the dollar is fairly strong. Uh, but the point is that that is meaningless. It, it's important if you're a currency trader, if it's important if you're exporting or importing and you haven't hedged your currency exposure, sure, it matters. But um, in terms of understanding what's going on with the dollar, all you're doing, when you look at the euro, US dollar cross rate, you're just comparing two paper currencies to each other, but they're all in the same boat. Imagine 10 survivors of a shipwreck in the same lifeboat with no food, no water. Um, you know, maybe one's taller, one's shorter, whatever, but you're all in the same boat. Uh, there's no way that, that one of these currencies is going to get in serious trouble and it's not going to affect all the others. The only way to understand whether the dollar is strong or weak is to, is to look at the dollar price of gold. Gold is a form of money. Uh, people think it's a commodity. It's not. It's not good for much, but it's a great form of money. Uh, so look at the dollar price of gold. 
that will tell you if the dollar is strong or weak. And the dollar price of gold has been skyrocketing, which is a loss of confidence in the dollar. So again, if you're looking at currency to currency, you can say the dollar is strong, um, but that's not a very meaningful metric. Uh, you have to look at the dollar value of gold. And what that's telling you is that confidence in the dollar is weakening sharply. And that's what you would expect when the Federal Reserve goes out and prints, you know, five dollars uh, in, in a matter of months. Mm -hmm. Jim, uh, in your books, you also um, point to the role of uh, the IMF. Uh, and you outlined already that uh, there are right now no currency alternatives to the U.S. dollars. If we look at the traded currencies, uh, uh, their shares, um, it's basically um, nothing that comes even closer to the U.S. dollar, right? I mean, if we take uh, a rising power China and look at uh, the share of the traded currency, the yuan, it's uh, nothing. It's uh, absolutely almost yeah. Yeah, it's just invisible. It's 2 or 3 percent. That's right. Yeah, That's right. exactly. So obviously there will be some or we see already that China is trying to somehow find a leverage within international institutions. And um, my question to you is, do you think that the IMF, uh, we've witnessed in the last month that I think 80 countries applied for uh, financial support uh, at the IMF, and uh, we've also witnessed their statements uh, presenting themselves as sort of alternative way of how to, how to provide liquidity to these countries. So obviously there will be a role for the CDR, and you've been touching upon this, uh, specifically upon this uh, role. So could you uh, maybe tell us more about how you see the role of the IMF, the role of uh, the CDR? Uh, there is also a question related to this coming from, uh, from, um, from the audience. Uh, basically, uh, how do you anticipate uh, a possibility that the IMF would introduce uh, another currency in the basket, or maybe would um, make the the existing currencies, uh, well, the mixture of currencies in the basket uh, in another relation, so uh, relation or whatsoever. I don't know how exactly this is going to look like, but maybe you have already an idea about it. Sure. Well, let's let's separate two things: uh, International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Has, I believe 189 members, um, maybe one or two offices say 189 members. Um, they've got, uh, there are two separate uh, things we need to analyze. One is, what is the lending capacity today? Leaving aside world money, which um, with the special drawing right or SDR, I call it world money, uh, and their ability to print that, create it. Leave that to one side. What is their lending capacity today? And they do have quite a bit. They have a fairly clean balance sheet. They're not nearly as leveraged as any of the major central banks. Um, they have uh, standby facilities. Uh, they have uh, you know, long-term lending facilities, short-term lending facilities, uh, liquidity facilities. So they can do quite a bit. And they're concentrated on the poorer countries. And, and the IMF is not a a welfare agency, they would like people to think they are, uh, but uh, they, they really are there to help the major economies. But right now, 
the major economies, uh, you know, the European Central Bank, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, People's Bank of China, and the Federal Reserve, they're doing all they can. So the IMF looks around and says, well, if the U.S. doesn't really need a loan from us because they've got the Federal Reserve to print all the money they need. Likewise, in Europe, you've got, you know, Madame Lagarde, uh, head of the European Central Bank. She used to be head of the IMF. So yep. She knows how the game is played. Yep. So they, they can print all the euros they want. So you'll see the IMF lending to um, African countries, South Asian countries, Latin American countries on an as-needed basis. And they, they've got ample room to do that. But the other subject you touched on, Valina, maybe more important for the future, uh, is their ability to print SDRs, special drawing rights, again, what I call world money. They can do exactly what the Federal Reserve does. They can just pull it out of thin air uh, and give it to the members. Now, there are a couple of constraints there. Number one, they would have to get approval from their executive committee, uh, their International Monetary Committee. The U.S. has veto power over that. You need an 85% vote uh, to approve something that's significant. Well, guess what? The United States has 16% of the votes, so all the rest of the countries in the world together are only 84%, and that's by design. It gives the, it gives the U.S. a veto. Uh, it doesn't mean, <clears throat> pardon me, it doesn't mean the U.S. can make things happen. It does mean the U.S. can stop things from happening uh, mm -hmm. if we choose not to support it. So you'll need the you'll need the U.S. on board, but uh, but on the other hand, you'll need uh, all the other countries on board uh, with large voting shares, and a lot of them are in Europe, to go ahead and issue these SDRs. SDR was created in 1969, so there's nothing new about it. It's been around for uh, 50 years, um, and uh, they were issued in tranches between 1970 and 1980, and then that was it. There were no SDRs issued for. Uh, almost 30 years, between 1980 and 2009. Then, in 2009, in the year following the global financial crisis, they did do an issue, and I looked at it at the time. I might have been the only one who noticed outside the, uh, the IMF itself, but it wasn't a large number, several hundred billion, but it wasn't a large number relative mm -hmm. to the problem, but it struck yeah. me as a, as a dry run, a, a practice. Like, hey, let's see, we haven't done this in 30 years, let's see if we can still do this, and they, and they did. Now, here we are uh, 10 years later, 11 years later, um, the world, uh, again, is confronted with a liquidity crisis. The Federal Reserve is yep. responding. But at what point does the Federal Reserve destroy confidence in the dollar? At what point does even the Federal Reserve say, you know what, we pulled $5 trillion out of thin air on top of the $5 trillion we already had. Our mm -hmm. balance sheet is now $10 trillion. Uh, There's a limit, some invisible confidence boundary. And that's debatable. The modern monetary theorists say there is no limit. Uh, legally, yep. that's correct. There, there is, is no Is there a psychological limit? And do you want to get there? So then you're back to, well, should we have an emergency issue of SDRs? Well, the problem with that is the SDRs will be allocated by, um, by membership, by the voting rights and capital accounts of the membership. That means China would get some because they're a member, and Iran, <coughs> pardon me, Iran would get some. The U.S. is opposed to giving any assistance to Iran because yep. of their nuclear development program, their weapons testing program, their, their terrorist program, and their violations of human rights. So as of now, the U.S. is standing in the way of issuing new SDRs, not because we don't want to liquefy the world, but because we don't want to help Iran and China. So right now, as we speak, I don't think any SDRs are going to be issued. It's something to watch down the road. 
it's the only real competitor for the dollar in the long run, but there aren't enough of them out there. We don't have a robust SDR bond market. You need a bond market, not just a currency. You need a bond market to have a true global reserve currency. So it's, it's worth watching. It's highly political, but in the short run, you, you probably won't see new SDRs issued. And the reason has nothing to do with economics, everything to do with geopolitics and the U.S. not wanting to help Iran and China. Mm-hmm. Obviously, and Russia, even though that we are now observing a kind of a Helsinki 2.0 moment between Russia and United States, uh, supposedly because of the systemic rivalry with China and uh, with Trump trying to somehow um, partition these two uh, actors. Um, but I would like to ask you a question about Trump. Um, Last year in September, uh, your model was uh, telling, and you are one of uh, the people who also predicted uh, the election of Trump and Brexit outcome. So your model is pretty, pretty accurate. Uh, how um, is uh, your model uh, seeing now the possibility of uh, Trump being reelected, given that we are now also, uh, we have to also calculate the pandemic and uh, specifically the response to the pandemic and the repercussions uh, from the pandemic for the economy. And we know perfectly well that uh, elections are won based on the performance, uh, the economic performance, first and foremost. So how do you see the Trump beating himself due to his response to Trump uh, to to COVID nineteen, because uh, or do you see a realistic chance for Biden to actually win uh, against uh, Trump? Uh, what is your take on this? Well, well, thank you. Uh, you're, you're right, William. My my model is uh, highly accurate. It has very powerful predictive analytic capabilities. But it's important to understand that the reason the model works is because it it updates constantly based on new information. So you can't do a forecast and put a stake in the ground and say, that's it. You have to mm -hmm. constantly evaluate new news. So you're right, last September, uh, I gave Trump a 74% probability of winning re-election, and that was right. And uh, the forecast was that that percentage would go up you know, continuously between then and election day, so that by election day, his odds would be closer to 90%. Um, and that was that was exactly right at the time. But the update, of course, is we have a global pandemic and a global yeah. depression. So uh, those are pretty big facts to put in the model. Right now, I've got it at uh, at fifty fifty. It's just uh, uh, it, it it's a coin toss. Now that will change between now and election day. I will up I do update uh, all the time. But um, you'd have to say it, it's kind of fifty fifty. And that's interesting in a couple of respects. Number one, the stock market has. Uh, you know, is always trying to reprice for the future. That's what stock markets do. They discount the future. Um, and it's struggling to discount for the impact of coronavirus. It, we have a, a better handle on it now than we did a month ago, but there's so many unknowns. We don't know about reinfections. We don't know whether the warm weather difference, mm -hmm. although, of course, it's only warm weather in the north, northern hemisphere, not the southern hemisphere. They're, they're going into their winter. Um, we don't know if there'll be a second wave. There's some evidence that there may be. Uh, we don't know if reopening economies will will or will not uh, cause the, the spread of the infection further, the, again, the so-called second wave. So there's a lot we don't know. But but to the extent that you can 
maybe take a slightly optimistic view of that. The market has discounted that. The market is also struggling to discount the impact of the depression, uh, the economic impact, mm -hmm. independent of the virus. And we talked about that earlier. Will we have a, a V-shaped recovery, a quick bounce back? I, I don't see that. Will it be the so-called L-shaped recovery where we you know, get back on our feet a little bit but have a long, drawn-out period of high unemployment and low growth? Much more likely, in my view. But you can debate it either way, and the stock market is struggling with that. But there's a third factor that the market has not even begun to confront, which is President Biden. Uh, because, uh, you know, the last time in 2016, you know, Hillary Clinton had somewhere between 92 and 95 percent uh, probability of winning. And there were you could probably count on one hand the number of people who predicted Trump. I was one of them. There are a few others. Yeah. And interestingly, Michael Moore, who's a far left progressive, but he's he's smart and he, he could see that Trump is going to win. Uh, Steve Bannon, there were, there were really only a couple of people who predicted Trump. Uh, today, it, it, it was different, at least actually until a few months ago, uh, there was a consensus that Trump was going to win. I'm not, I'm not anti-consensus. I, I don't mind being out of consensus if that's what the model says. But if you're in consensus, so be it. You know, I kind of go with the model. Um, the problem now is that the market has not come to grips with the possibility of President Biden. What does that mean? It means higher taxes, more regulation, um, you know, more kind of closing up to China at a time when we've already decided to decouple from China. Uh, it, and, you know, big parts of the Green New Deal, probably a very progressive vice president. Uh, and then uh, Biden has some serious um, uh, cognitive issues, uh, whether that's, I'm not a, a doctor or psychologist, but, you know, you can judge for yourself based on the evidence. He can't speak coherently. He can't string a sentence together. So you could have a situation where Biden wins, He's very quickly uh, removed from office under the 25th Amendment because of his mental decline. The president mm -hmm. would become the, the president. And if you have a progressive vice president, you're going to have, you know, who would be president? You know, Stacey Abrams, uh, Elizabeth Warren. You, the, these are things that the market hasn't even confronted yet. And they're all they're all in the cards. Now, the original forecast for Trump basically said the largest thing, single factor was no recession. So when a, when a president runs for re-election, they always win unless mm -hmm. there's a recession. Every every example of a president running for re-election, and George H.W. Bush in 1992, Jimmy Carter in 1980, they both lost, but they both had recessions. So um, uh, if, you, if you're running for re-election and you don't have a recession, you almost certainly win. However, the inverse is not true. Saying if you don't have a recession, you'll win, is not the same as saying if you do have a recession, you'll lose. You might, but that's not automatic. Obviously, Trump's got a recession. It's probably more like a depression. That's not mm -hmm. good for his prospects. It doesn't mean he'll lose. No one blames him for the virus. Uh, and the economic decline collapse really was a direct consequence of the virus. Trump will be judged on how he handles it. We have six. He's done some things right. He's done some things very poorly. Uh, so he's getting a mixed score at the moment, but he still has a chance to, um, uh, you know, kind of lead the country out of this and get the economy moving again. So, so let's see. So right now it's 50-50. I, I can't be better than that. Uh, Trump's greatest uh, weakness, of course, is the economic collapse and the, his handling of the pandemic. His greatest strength may be that Biden is such a weak candidate. I mean, Biden's been kept under wraps. The Democrats are talking about... Um, a digital convention, 
All right, medically, that may make some sense, but a digital convention means no convention. It's another way to keep Biden under wraps. They've got to keep him hidden because he just does not perform well in public. Uh, he has a very cooperative media who will be you know, engaged in not highlighting what I just described. Uh, but the American people will see it. And then when we get to October and we have debates, it'll be very hard to keep Biden under wraps. And uh, so we'll see. So it's, it, right now it's a two horse race. It's, it's they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're neck and neck, as we say in racing. Um, mm -hmm. It'll be a close finish no matter what. But uh, you can't say more than that right now. But, but I can say that the stock market has not fully come to grips with the prospect of uh, President Biden. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, last question on my side, because I want to reserve some time also for questions uh, from uh, the audience, and I've collected some. Um, so you've outlined perfectly for all of us uh, what the current repercussions are in all key fields. So we have uh, disruption. We have a global disruption of global supplies. Oh, supply. We have, uh, uh, we have, uh, sorry, for a second. Uh, we have um, no demand right now, right? We have a huge plunge, uh, expected plunge in uh, the GDP, in the global GDP, and specifically in the developed economies. And we have the social repercussions also, you know, the huge pressure with unemployment numbers, uh, never seen in the history since uh, the World War II, right? Right. Do you think, uh, and I know that you are also uh, a fan of complexity like I am, and um, you also have outlined the butterfly effect, the cascading effects uh, due to connected networks in your book, specifically, specifically also in your last book. Uh, so do you think that all of these um, simultaneously happening uh, shocks to all of these systems might result in a major shock to the global system much much bigger than the one we witnessed in 2007 2008 one that we one that the system will not absorb this time and if that would be the case who is going to be bailed out this time i'm wondering right because we saw what happened last time uh, and who was actually bailed out so the too big to fail, the systemic relevant institutions. But now we are already observing the situation when some of these systemic relevant uh, actors and institutions are trying to get a bailout once again. And here in Europe, for instance, there is already discussion, for instance, in France or in Poland or in Denmark, that offshore companies will not get a bailout um, from the governments. So what is your take? Maybe that's more like a philosophical question for me. Of course, uh, I wish that uh, we won't see this scenario, but on the other side, Great Depression was mentioned, uh, unprecedented uh, fiscal and monetary packages, unprecedented measures, unprecedented numbers, right? We are witnessing every day. So what if the system will not absorb this, all of these major shocks happening right now in all of these relevant systems. What will happen next? Right. Well, what's well, a great question, Lena, and you mentioned uh, complexity theory, and that is the right way to think about it. It's one of the tools I use. I use uh, Bayesian statistics, uh, behavioral psychology, history, other applied mathematics, but uh, complexity theory is, is the, uh, the main way that you frame 
the issues to do all the more specific uh, uh, math associated with that. But we've already seen, um, so a, a pandemic is a complex dynamic system. How the virus mutates, how it spreads, it's an exponential or superlinear function, uh, how it spreads to a population, you contain it or not. That's one complex dynamic system. The economy obviously is a complex dynamic system. Politics, we talked a little bit about that with Trump and Biden. That's another complex dynamic system, lots of human, human interaction. What they're doing is they're crashing into each other. So a pandemic by itself would be a, a you know, very difficult thing to deal with, very difficult thing to, but it has crashed into the economy and, and the economy has collapsed. Now we'll see how quickly it comes back. I'm, uh, I, my view is it'll come back very slowly. Others have a different view, but either way, that is a complex dynamic system, throws up emergent properties. Um, and then it's crashing into the political campaign for the reasons we mentioned. Mm -hmm. So one way to think about this, and we have a real world example, is was the Fukushima event in Japan in uh, March 2011. Now what happened there? There was an undersea earthquake, a very large earthquake. You know, tectonic plates crashing into each other. The earthquake caused a tidal wave or a tsunami. It, it didn't have to, but it did. So the tsunami comes ashore and it crashes into a nuclear power plant. It could have gone somewhere else. The tsunami could have crashed into some empty island someplace, but it didn't. It crashed into a nuclear power plant, caused three hydrogen ex explosions and, and two meltdowns uh, that, got, that got out of control. And then that crashed the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Those stocks plunged. They came back. But so yeah. there you had uh, tectonic plates, seismology, crashing into hydro causing a tsunami, crashing into a nuclear power plant, causing mm -hmm. uh, a meltdown, a radioactive meltdown, and then finally causing a capital markets collapse. So four mm -hmm. distinct systems, seismology, uh, uh, hydrology, radiology, and capital markets crashing into each other. Well, we've had three. We've had a pandemic crashing into the economy, crashing into politics, and your question is what's next? It, it could be bad. It could be a social disorder. And this gets back to what you mentioned about 2008. Now, in 2008, that was a financial crisis. It had ripple effects. It had, you know, unemployment went up and output went down and uh, businesses closed. There were a lot of costly effects of it, but it was very much centered in the financial markets. We saw the collapse of Bear Stearns, then Fannie Mae, then Freddie Mac, then mm -hmm. Lehman Brothers, then AIG, and others would have you know, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, others would have been right behind, except by then the government intervened and, and truncated the, the cascade. But it was kind of boxed in the financial system. This is different. This did not start in the financial system. And in fact, the, the banks are patting themselves on the back and said, we've built up our capital and we've increased our liquidity and we're more robust. Yeah. And that's all true as far as it goes. But here's the, here's the problem. We talked earlier about the rents and they're not. I mean, I've, I've seen... Um, I've seen data from uh, you know my friends in the commercial real estate industry uh, who are very well connected, and they're saying uh, you know in retail more than fifty percent of the landlords are not paying their rents. And Neiman Marcus, major high-end retailers, signaled that it may file for bankruptcy. J.C. Penney is preparing to file for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. um, in the commercial space, ninety percent of the tenants are not paying their rents. Well, that throws the loss to the landlords who can't afford the mortgages. They don't pay the mortgages. But now you're back to the banks. And my point being, 2008 started in the banks in the financial system. 
This started in the real economy, but it always ends up in the banks because they're the ultimate leverage lenders who, who finance everything, whether it's, uh, you know, or funds, you know, with junk bonds or commercial loans or real estate loans, construction loans, uh, you know, or even individual consumers with auto loans, credit cards, et cetera. It comes back to the banks. So we may have a financial crisis yet to come on top mm -hmm. of the economic exactly. crisis we already have. And I would, I would remind uh, people that, um, you know, in 1998, August, September, 1998, they remember the Russian default and long-term capital management. And I was very involved in that, I, that bailout. Um, but that actually started in June, 1997 uh, with, um, sorry, just uh, uh, rebooting. Um, that actually started in June uh, 1997 with the devaluation of the Thai bot. So it took a year, over a year, to come around the world. Yeah. Same thing in 2008. Well, the, the, 2008 financial, the, the, the 2008 financial crisis actually started in the spring of 2007 with the mortgage market. And then there was a failure of some Bear Stearns funds in July 2007. So that took a year to come around the world. So this uh, collapse has only started in, let's say, February, March of 2020 do we have a an unpleasant surprise and a financial collapse coming in 2021 because it will take a while for this to ripple through i keep an eye on that and the last thing is social unrest people remember 2008 they remember that the elites were protected the banks were propped up jamie diamond kept his bonuses but uh, while individual businesses went went out of business and and many individuals lost their jobs and never recovered them. And they're still angry about that. They're still angry about 2008. Well, you throw another mm -hmm. crisis on top of that today. And once again, it looks like the elites are getting bailed out, private equity, hedge funds, big banks, et cetera. Even yeah. this payroll protection plan, we had a lot, most of the money mm -hmm. went to very large businesses, not the small businesses. So there may be another wave of anger that starts to show up on the streets. And again, I would keep an eye out on that for social unrest. Mm -hmm. So it's obvious it's going to be about the too many to, uh, to fail this time, the ordinary people, the small businesses, the entrepreneurs, rather than the too big to, to fail. If the governments focus uh, on the wrong actors, probably they will increase the risk of uh, what you've outlined as a possibility of a financial crisis next. So basically as a result of uh, the other developments taking place prior to it. So I'm going to ask you some really technical questions in the last round with, uh, I'll just ask you to, 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 to stay very short on them because I want to also to use the opportunity uh, for the audience to uh, hear your answers. Um, so there's a question about future mobility, uh, so mobile payments. Uh, do you see actually rising uh, possibility of uh, using uh, mobile payments? Uh, there was the example with Africa uh, that turned to, so African countries turned to mobile payments um, as a tool to curb COVID-19. Do you see this in uh, developed economies? Yes, no, I think uh, it's sufficient as an answer. Uh, the answer is yes. Clearly, mobile payments are a big way of the future. The question is, what are you paying in? Are you, are you paying in, um, you know, dollars and euros, or are you paying in Bitcoin? I think I think Bitcoin is junk, so I wouldn't look for Bitcoin or others to be the the uh, the medium of exchange. But as far as the channel, yes, mobile payments are are going to grow. Mm -hmm. Then there is also question uh, regarding future confiscations. Uh, there is the example given with. Um, 
for instance, online purchases that can be followed uh, due to our digital footprint. Uh, um, so how do you see the possibility of future confiscations? Uh, yeah, I like to say when you put your money in the bank, it's not your money anymore. It's the bank's money and they'll give it to you if they feel like it. And if, if you don't believe that, you'll walk up to the counter and ask for $100,000 in cash. They won't, they won't give it to you. They'll tell you to come make an appointment and come back. So, uh, yeah, when your money is in digital form at an institution, there is a risk of either confiscation or a freeze, which is kind of the same thing. Uh, and for people who say this can't happen, it's happened many, many times. Uh, in 1933, President Roosevelt closed every bank in the United States by executive order. Uh, 2013, the banks in Cyprus were closed. 2015, the banks in Greece were closed. Today, the banks in Lebanon are closed. Don't think it can't happen because it can and it will. Mm -hmm. um, then there is a question. How do you see low, high uh, end jewelry and gem premiums in a depression? You mentioned already the possibility of a great depression next to already a recession trend that was here prior to COVID-19. So how do you see uh, these low, high end jewelry gem premiums? in a depression yeah, scenario. Yeah, gem, gem premiums will decline. Uh, you know, gems are, are pretty, they retain value, but they're not as scarce as people believe. Uh, the diamonds are not that scarce at all. They, they control them, they, you know, De Beers controls the market. They've done a great job of marketing and propping up the price, but they're not scarce at all. They're really just good for smuggling or, you know, wearing them kind of decoratively. Gold is different. Uh, uh, gold jewelry, I've always viewed as bullion. People talk about the gold industry uh, in terms of sales, including jewelry sales. But I've never separated jewelry and bullion. It's just, it's just, it's wearable wealth. So it's prettier. You pay a little more for the for the uh, craftsmanship. But uh, coins, bars, and gold jewelry are all the same to me. Mm -hmm. And, and sorry, that, that premium, that that premium will be maintained. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there is one more question uh, which uh, regards um, as regards the importance of having some assets outside of the tr uh, traditional financial system, uh, such as investments, uh, okay, gemstones was already mentioned, but also fine wine, whiskey, so basically this kind of assets. So what is your take on this? Uh, yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a subjective market. It's a... Um a volatile market. Uh, if you want hard assets outside the financial system that retain value and will actually appreciate, uh, even in very difficult times, I would put real estate, gold, silver, and some natural resources at the top of the list. Now, if you want to collect wine or rare whiskeys or fine art, that that's fine. I have nothing against it, but uh, make, make sure you have your gold and, and real estate first before you uh, build up your wine collection. Mm-hmm. And my last question, of course, refers to gold. Um, you've always talked in your books about uh, having allocation of a, of, of a, of a 10%. Uh, um, so basically 10% of your allocations should be gold. Uh, would you adjust this um, to the current situation? Should this allocation uh, actually rise? And also we, we know that countries started stockpiling gold. Here in Europe, uh, this was a trend already 
prior to COVID-19, but also other countries such as uh, China, Russia, have been stockpiling gold uh, uh, in their national reserves, right? So what is, what is your take? Uh, is 10% of allocation for private, um, uh, so for private clients still uh, enough or should be more? Is it now adjusted? And also uh, linked to this, how do you see a country's strategy of, uh, you know, stockpiling gold is probably not the right word. Some of them just uh, actually repatriated their gold. It was their gold, but it was actually in, uh, not in their hands, right? So now there is the effort, the national effort to repatriate gold. So how do you see these trends? Yeah, um, uh, you're right. Uh, some countries are bringing their gold out, you know, taking the gold from New York and London and bringing it back. Germany has brought a lot of gold back to Frankfurt. Uh, other countries are, are doing likewise. So you're absolutely right about that. But in terms of new gold, Russia and China have more than tripled their gold reserves in the last 10 years. And Russia, Russia is, is very transparent. China is non-transparent. Uh, but um, Russia today, 20% of Russia's reserves are in gold. Russia got the reserves back up to about $500 billion, and over $100 billion of that is, is gold. So they're uh, clearly making a uh, major statement there. I still I stick with the 10% allocation, but people, but I like um, people to be nim nimble and be able to pivot, and you know you don't just put a stake in the ground. So if you have a 10% allocation of gold, that leaves the other 90%. I've always recommended about 30% of that be in cash, but remember mm -hmm. cash has optionality. So if things change, you can take the cash and buy gold. Uh, I'm not recommending that. Yeah, 10% is enough. Uh, if I'm wrong, no one's going to get hurt with a 10% allocation. If I'm right, uh, it will serve you very well. Obviously, I think I'm right or I wouldn't be recommending it. But with, but there, the time may come when you want to pivot out of cash into gold, and that allocation may go up. But I don't think we're quite there yet. Okay. I think that we managed to touch upon all questions that I could collect. And also, we uh, both of you could uh, basically outline a pretty big picture of what's going on right now uh, as regards to the United States, but also as regards to the global system. And I'm really, really thankful, uh, Jim, for taking the time uh, to be my first uh, guest in this digital format. I know that you're very busy and that you're going to the next interview. Um, in an hour, if I'm not wrong. Uh, so very, very, I mean, really thank you for being with me and uh, please stay safe and sound, you and your loved ones. And for those of our listeners who want to ask further questions or react to what we have discussed, feel free to engage on our social media accounts on Twitter. You can find both of us easily on Twitter Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, stay with us and follow our analysis. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Valena.